we are back again with another episode of the Global Gale podcast. I hope you are well wherever you are in the world. I'm just getting to the end. If you've been listening to this podcast for a little while now, you'll know what the story is. I have been over here in Doha covering the World Cup in Qatar and my time here is coming to the end. Like that fine football team, the Republic of Ireland, I only ever make it as far as the quarterfinals at these big tournaments, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, the quarterfinals are just about to end now. The last couple are going on today as I'm talking to you. And I'll be packing my bag and baggage and heading for the airport here in Doha uh, early on Sunday morning. Then I'll be heading back to my home in Stockholm. But I managed to find the time to make a little podcast for the Irish community around the world. Uh, it's always weird when you're doing this podcast, right? Because you think, you know, originally our people stemmed from the Northern Hemisphere. And in December, that's a time for Christmas. And, you know, postcards with or Christmas cards with snow and that kind of thing. But around half of us living down below in Australia now, and they'll be having their Christmas dinner on the beach, and the sun will be splitting the stones. And the same for those living in South Africa and South America. And you're always trying to keep yourself cognizant of that, as they say in intelligence circles. So, uh, yeah, I'm in Doha at the moment, and it's absolutely sweating. Um, it was a little bit chilly today. Never seen that before in the desert. A little bit cold today, a little bit overcast, but I'll be heading back up to the snow in Sweden now and getting ready for the Christmas. It's been a very busy week. Normally, this podcast would have been out uh, early this morning. I'm speaking to you on the Saturday. It would have been out about 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock of a Saturday morning. I can only apologise, ladies and gentlemen. I thought I was going to have a guest. Uh, even to the very last second, I thought that I was going to have a particular guest joining me for this show. And I really wanted to bring you that particular show because it had to do with the World Cup over here. And there's very little point in doing it any other time. If you're going to talk about the World Cup, sure, Jay, you may as well talk about it now. I might talk about it a little bit more at some later stage now, maybe for next week's podcast ahead of the final. But uh, unfortunately, that person wasn't able to meet up with me. We weren't able to get a bit of a recording done. And that happens in this business. That's, you know, sometimes uh, you have to... The, the best laid plans of mice and men turn out to be... Uh, they go to shite, basically, you know. So, but... But the great planning that has been done before we ever came to Doha means that we have an interview in our back pocket, which is just as interesting, if not more so, ladies and gentlemen. So rather than interview somebody here in the desert in Doha, I interviewed somebody who is, I suppose you would describe it as part of one of the oldest, but the smallest Irish communities in the world. And that is an academic called Luke Field, who is living above in Iceland in the northeast Atlantic, as we call it, from where we look at the map, because, of course, Ireland is the centre of the universe. And uh, I got in touch with with Luke, uh, you know, we started looking for, for people to talk to from various different parts of the world, and sometimes I put out a bit of a call on social media, and people get in touch with suggestions, and sometimes those people themselves have fascinating stories to tell. And Luke was one of those people who wanted to tip me off about some, somebody else, and I went, oh, hang on a second here now, I'd actually prefer to talk to you first, I'll get around to the people that he has suggested to me as well. But Luke is living above in Iceland, and he's teaching about politics and pol- political systems up there. So I thought I'd have a little chat with him, because that's one of those, Iceland is one of those places that I've always been fairly fascinated by myself. I remember reading a little ladybird book, if you remember what ladybird books were if you're that old, uh, about the country whoa, many, many years ago and being fascinated by it. And I've been lucky enough to be there on several occasions and to see a fair bit of the south of the country, the south coast of the country. Never been to the north but I'll have to correct that at some point in the future. And it's a fascinating place. And if you've any, uh, if you've had any dealings with Iceland and Icelandic culture and that kind of thing, you'll realise what I'm talking about. Because in one way, being stuck there in the middle of the North Atlantic for so long, 
uh, it has developed in a very sort of homogenous way, in a very interesting way. The language is really, really old, sort of traditional version that maybe stems from Old Norse and the Vikings that sort of founded the place. But there are very much Irish influences in the country and in the language and in the place and in the culture as well, which we get into. So, look at without further ado, um, let me just tell you before we get into the view uh, into the interview with Luke Field that this, of course, is a listener-supported podcast. Patreon.com forward slash Arrow man in Stockholm. You can support me for a fiver a month, lads, if you could, right? You don't have to. The podcast will always be free. The cost of these things should never be a barrier to enjoying the, this, what is community content, right? It's for the Irish community around the world. If you can support me, absolutely brilliant. And even if you can't, go ahead. But what I would ask you to do, right, and I've noticed that especially in the, in the last couple of weeks when I've been over here in Doha and just haven't had so much time, please share the podcast, right? So if this has popped up on your, you know, your local Facebook page in Brisbane, poke it out there, share it. If you enjoyed the interview, share it and say, yeah, I enjoy listening to Phil talking to this person or that person or I'd like to see him have a person from, from our location on or anything like that but it's only by you sharing the podcast that I can make it for you and I can put it out there but it's only by you and and your family and your friends sharing the podcast that the thing will grow and hopefully then we'll be able to get enough subscribers or maybe even an advertiser or two uh, to, to make it sort of worth my while doing it because as a professional journalist you kind of have to motivate these things by making a few quid off it which, you know that's just how these things work you know so it'd be great if I could do that so I don't feel guilty when I come to you with a podcast 12 hours late you know be jizz if there was people paying for it sure i'd have it out with the crack of dawn this morning but that's how it is listen i won't bore you any longer let's get into this chat with luke field about iceland and about ireland and the similarities and the differences and all that great stuff only on the global gale podcast All the way from Iceland. What part of Iceland are you in at the moment, my friend? Hiya, Phil. I'm in Reykjavik. I'm in the capital, which is where most people will say they are if you ask them that question. <laughs> so it's about, I think, the population of Iceland, the last time I counted them was around about 336,000 odd people, right? And most of them would live where you live. Uh, most of them would have been born there and would have a connection to Iceland. So how did you wind up there? Did you get lost on the way home one night or what? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so a lot of migrants here are asked that question, right? And usually the question is asked with the expectation that there's going to be some sort of very romantic story about this. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's romantic in the sense that they were clubbed over the head by an Icelander somewhere else in the world and dragged back. Or, you know, they came over because they fell in love with the language or the, the culture or whatever it was. And they're a little bit disappointed when they ask me this question and I give them the more prosaic response that I was offered a job and I took it. Uh, so, <laughs> which, you know, like, it, I mean, some people are immediately like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So then you could see some others are a little bit, little bit disappointed. Um, but yeah, it's, it's that, a that... valid reason. It's a valid reason. <laughs> I like to think so. Uh, yeah, no. So I, I've been here for a little over two years and um, I was living in Cork prior to that, uh, which is my hometown, as mm -hmm. the, the accent probably gives away. And uh, I just was applying for a lot of different jobs in the academic world. I was, uh, after finishing my PhD, I was working part-time in UCC and there wasn't too many things opening up uh, in Ireland. So I was applying all over Europe. And uh, there was this particular gig came up in Iceland. Uh, I remember seeing the ad at the time and thinking, oh, Iceland, I must admit, I don't know a huge amount about the higher education system in Iceland. This would be one way to learn about it, I suppose. Uh, but I was applying for 
I'd say I applied for 20 other jobs that week. You know, it was that sort of that sort of period where you're just throwing stuff out there. But uh, the fates came together that, that this was the one that was most interested in me. And I suppose there was a little part of me was more interested in this than I was in some of the others, just because I didn't know anybody who had, you know, come to Iceland and tried to make something of themselves. So I was kind of up for the challenge, but it was something as straightforward as trying to trying to find employment. Mm. What did you know about the country before you went there? Because, like, you know, full disclosure, Iceland is one of my favorite places in the world. Ever since I saw one of those ladyboard books as a child, and I just saw this, and I was just, I was absolutely obsessed with it. I think the first time I went there was about 2006, 2007. I've been back several times since, uh, most of the time to Reykjavik, but I've also been to the Westman Islands, which were named after the people that we booted out of Ireland because they were, you know, the kind of criminals that not even we could put up with, and they ended up up there, which is why there's a few redheads wandering around. But what you personally, Luke, did you know anything about Iceland, about art, about culture, about the language, about the political system there before you moved there? So I'd, I'd love to say I knew a huge amount about it and that I arrived in knowing absolutely everything and was able to throw my weight around like nothing on earth. But... This is exactly as I expected. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wish I could say that. Uh, no, I, I knew a few bits and pieces, right? So the, 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 the Icelandic population, I think, since the last full census is kind of up to around 400,000 but that oh, wow. that's something that's come about since I arrived here prior to that I always thought of it as being about the same size as the county of Cork because you know that that's how I measure units you know it's so it's just it's just <laughs> it's what you learn to do, to do it. it's, it's <laughs> just what you learn to do with that part of the country uh, so I was kind of aware, aware of it being a small country but you know kind of a fiercely independent state at the same time kind of having a little bit of a similar history to ourselves in the sense of having you know been colonized and uh, getting its independence in the 20th century and having to carve out an identity for itself on the world stage uh, so I knew all of that maybe not the detail as such and then you know obviously you know you've got some of the cultural references like Björk and Sigurros, Emiliana Torini uh, you know like people like that who would have been on my radar for different reasons and of course I, I guess a lot of people in Ireland would have been aware of the um the, the genome, the Icelandic genome study, because we got mentioned in it, <laughs> you know, that the, there was such a, a high percentage of the um, the, the genetic uh, code of the modern Icelander comes from Ireland that, um, you know, Irish people being generally fairly obsessed with everything to do with Ireland um, in, in, some, in the way that Cork people are obsessed with everything to do from Cork, uh, you know, that that's something that I guess I would have been aware of and some others as well. Uh, but apart from that, you know, really and truly, you know, little things would come through like, you know, I, I was aware that they'd had the, the, the first female head of state and I was aware that generally speaking, um, women seem to be more likely to get elected to office than in some other places. But apart from that, I kind of had to <laughs> give myself a little bit of a crash course uh, between getting the job offer and moving over so that I didn't totally embarrass myself on arrival. And since then, I've just spent the rest of the time with my eyes and ears open trying to take in as much as I can. Mm. Uh, it is one of those places that has a very unusual history. Um, it's, you know, like again, you mentioned nobody really thinks of Iceland as being the kind of place that at one point was colonized. But if you look at it closely, you'll find an awful lot of people still speak Danish there to this day. And I often meet them here in Scandinavia. Could you explain mm. a little bit about the background of Iceland? And you mentioned their fierce sense of independence and maybe where that comes from. Yeah, no, I'd love to. It's it's kind of it's kind of my uh, my hobby horse <laughs> when I'm talking to the Irish because I I see all these connections between the two and you know it it, it it's it, it's startling in a lot of ways. So we we we'll go back to I guess when the the island was being originally settled and I I think the I think there's a claim here that the Irish might have got there first. Um, 
where there were uh, monastic communities for sure that were living on the island here prior to the arrival of the Norse. Um, and there's a lot of controversy, which we'll, we'll come to in a little while, about um, whether there were permanent Irish settlements here prior to the Norse arriving or whether these were uh, sort of uh, monastic efforts at getting away from the rest of society and living in sort of holy isolation, that kind of thing. Because obviously this would have quite different uh, ramifications for who's here now if there were Irish people who were uh, here and were, you know, having children, having descendants and so on versus the Norse coming over here with Irish slaves and so on. Um, so the, the, the you mentioned the Westman Islands and the reason that they're called the Westman Islands, as you say, is a reference to us as well. We were the Westmen when we were west of Norway. And despite the fact that the Norse who went to Iceland ended up quite a ways west of Ireland, <laughs> the, the name kind of stuck for a while. Um, and there's a, there's a fabulous story that I, I guess is very emblematic of the, the circumstances in which the island was settled uh, in the... I guess the, the eight, kind of eight hundred onwards, maybe maybe a little bit earlier. Um, the, the the Westman Islands get their name from a group of Irish slaves that were being brought over uh, by one of the early Norse settlers, the the ex Vikings who were uh, planning to retire to their farmlands here. And en route to Iceland, they uh, rebelled on the ship, uh, killed the 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 guy who was bringing them over, and crash landed on these islands. And later on, his half brother comes down and hunts down the Irish one by one on the islands uh, and eventually uh, you know, ki killing them off one by one until eventually he reaches their leader who's, uh, I think he's recorded in the sagas as having a name that's quite similar to Oduig. So we think he was a Duffy from the north, the northeast of Ireland uh, who leapt to his death rather than being killed by the vengeful half-brother. So I'm you know, the, the pro proper like uh, revenge Western stuff, which I think probably was not all that different from how the settlement of Iceland uh, progressed elsewhere. And the Icelandic sagas could be very interesting from that perspective because there is this sort of uh, tension, I guess, between the, the 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 sort of frontier struggles of what was primarily a farming community, you know, the the the, the, the sort of the Viking ideas projected onto them. But by and large, these were the guys who didn't really want to go and do the raiding and the sailing and all that. They were they were they were taking taking advantage of the farmland that was here, um, but also this sort of very brutal reality of life that's quite far away from uh, the the established legal structures. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I guess a little bit like ourselves, you know. Um, they have that sense, that very strong sense of identity, and um, it, that can, you know, obviously sometimes that can that that, that can have different different ramifications. Um, I lose my train of thought here now because I, I've tried I've tried to bridge about a thousand years. <laughs> uh, but in, in terms of where things kind of fall, very similar to ourselves, apart from these uh, genetic links that we've talked about and the the different waves of settlement is the uh the the kind of late 19th early 20th century and uh you you, you can see a lot about how the modern irish and and icelandic political and cultural context come together when you go back that little bit further so like ourselves they would have been um you know colonized by a, a nearby neighbor and the, the 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 danish ownership of iceland was kind of inherited um because you had originally a Norse settlement and it would have been part of the Kingdom of Norway and then over time the Kingdom of Norway and the Kingdom of Denmark come together and split apart 
and Iceland becomes a Danish territory rather than a Norwegian territory, if that makes sense. And from, I guess, from the 19th century onwards, uh, in particular, the Icelanders become quite reluctant, or at least they start to have ideas about how they could look after themselves, how they could mm. strike out on their own. And there's a parliament, the parliament here is called the Althing, and that is the longest surviving parliament in the world. They, since uh, they, I believe they think it's like around 930 uh, AD that the, uh, they first started having what would look to a modern viewer like a parliamentary meeting here of the, the different settlers. And that had been in place for 900 years or so when in 1800 Denmark said, uh -uh, you don't have a parliament anymore. We're going to start doing all of your um, legislature for you. So when you think about like where things were in Ireland at the time in terms of the, the national struggle, like, the, you know, you had uh, just a couple of years beforehand, you had Wolf Tone's rebellion in 1798. You know, the Fenian rebellion was coming up as well. And uh, nationalism is becoming a thing elsewhere in Europe. And that same dynamic is taking place here in Iceland at the time. And it's not to say that the cessation of the parliament was the thing that started it, but it is interesting that this happens and suddenly you start to see a really much stronger sense of Icelandic uh, independence as a, as a goal starting to, starting to come through. And a bit, a bit like ourselves, there would have been different strains of thought about what independence would look like. So there's there was a guy here, um, Jón Sigurdsson, who's seen as sort of the, the, the well, I guess, one of the founding fathers of the Icelandic independence movement. And there's a lot of similarities between him and Parnell. You know, mm. if you if you if you look at the, the way that these two guys would have operated, it wouldn't necessarily have been with a view to sort of taking up arms and overthrowing um, the, the oppressor by force, but more building a parliamentary movement and, um, you know, trying to trying to reform from within to get to where they wanted to go. Um, and I guess the, the, the unlike us, they did actually get something that was described as home rule in 1903, where they were still, you know, largely controlled by uh, Denmark, but had a lot of sway over their own affairs as well. And that's, it's from there onwards that you start to see some of our dates lining up again. So like, for example, um, the Icelandic, what we might call the Icelandic Free State, it was known as the Kingdom of Iceland, even though they didn't have their own monarch, they were under the Danish monarch in what was a personal union. So you might think about um, Arthur Griffith and that era of Sinn Féin with the dual monarchy uh, position. This is more or less what occurred in Iceland. That happens in 1918. So mm -hmm. just a few years before the Irish Free State is formed, Iceland ends up in kind of a similar situation as well. In 1944, the Icelandic Republic is declared just a few years before we did so too. Um, they get their first female president in 1980. We get our first female president in 1990. You know, it, it's it's very interesting to see how these two societies seem to have developed in parallel mm. and having all these really interesting similarities despite also being quite different in their own ways. Mm. Uh, you know, so... It's very interesting because they're they're often kind of grouped in with the Scandinavians, with the Nordic nations, you know, Finland, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, uh, who had a very strong sense of sort of post-war social democracy, the welfare state, etc., mm. etc. But you mentioned to me in an email that we where we were discussing these things that Iceland has been sort of much more centre-right politically than maybe the other nations that they've been thrown together with have. You you mentioned that they're actually closer to the sort of the the Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael kind of politics than maybe the social. Democrats of Sweden and Palme. 
In some respects, yeah. Like, I mean, I, I guess it's important to say that the the baseline of political uh, and economic organizing here is probably still closer to what you might describe as Nordic social democracy. But hmm. the it's it's certainly not the same as those countries. So, like, Iceland would very much see itself as Nordic, but not Scandinavian. Um, you know, we we tend to think of the the you know Norway and uh, Denmark and Sweden as being the Scandinavian countries, and then um, Iceland and Finland are the, the kind of the two outliers of the independent nations. And then, of course, you have the island communities as well, who very much have their own identities too. Um, but in 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 Iceland, I think it's very interesting that, as you say, there there are some similarities with the Irish political system in that regard. The um, the current government in in Iceland is a three party coalition featuring a Green Party and the two major centre-right parties to have emerged from the independence movement. Mm. So, you know, the Irish listeners might be might be nodding along with this at this point. And the, the two centre-right parties, uh, the Independence Party and the Progressive Party, uh, would have, I think, traditionally been much more successful in Iceland than their equivalents would have been in, say, for example, Denmark or Sweden. Um and I guess part of the reason for it is their centrality to the uh, the independence movement. You know, a bit like ourselves, there was maybe a lot of residual feeling um, amongst the Icelandic electorate for a long time that your political identity was maybe more determined on what side of some of those arguments you were on than um, than anything else. Now, mm. unlike us, they didn't have they didn't have a, a civil war post independence, uh, so it, it wasn't necessarily that level of acrimony between the two sides. But certainly, like you know, there would have been very much a sense that the Independence Party, which is traditionally the largest and most successful party in Iceland, very similar to the, the British Tories, um, and I guess maybe to in some respects to Fine Gael as well. It would have been seen as quite an urban party and representing a sort of an urban bourgeois middle class, whereas the Progressive Party was more the party of farmers, but more like Fianna Fáil. Mm. Um, and you know that that sort of conflict, I guess, in a country that is largely rural, uh, the majority of the population lives in a city, this city, but the uh, majority of the country is a rural is a rural nation. Um, that sort of conflict, maybe for the at least the early decades, would have been a very significant part of that political makeup. Um, mm. It's only really in the last, I think if there's, there's only, there has only been one coalition government to date that was um, a substantially left-wing coalition, uh, which was um, in the uh, late 2000s, I think. Uh, you had a, a coalition government that was led by the Social Democratic Party here, as it was at the time, uh, as the major party with the, the left-wing Green Party as the, the smaller one. And other than that, the coalitions to date have either been sort of broad coalitions bringing in the left and the right together, or else the centre right parties cooperating. So mm. you know that that's I, I guess is so for somebody who's coming from Denmark or Sweden or Norway, where you have these sort of blocks of parties that cooperate together and they don't really cross lines that often, or at least they didn't used to. It's starting to happen now. Mm. Um, you know it, that does sound quite different. I think. Um, it's fascinating because it's a re like Iceland. It's hard to get over how small it actually is in Reykjavik, mm. right? And I remember talking to the finance minister there maybe ten or fifteen years ago, and it turned out that he wasn't a, you know, an economist at all. He was actually a vet whose specialization was sort of fisheries, which is obviously a very important part of the Icelandic economy. It sounded funny to me at the time, but it made a lot of sense. But I've been told in the past, Luke, that you kind of have people who go from the central bank to being prime minister to being foreign 
foreign minister or minister for uh, for finance and then you know they might run one of the local newspapers and then you have the big supermarket chains and essentially that the power in that country very much like the way in Ireland maybe it might be concentrated between bankers and developers and a few selected politicians is that a fair assessment or is that just a little bit too glib for you? Um, I mean, I I don't think it's an unfair assessment. I'll put it that way. Um, there's obviously there, there's a lot of nuance to this, but it's still true. I think that certain sectoral interests are quite dominant and strong here. I mean, you mentioned the fisheries, and uh, that that's quite a controversial political topic here in Iceland because you know you have um, one major uh, fisher uh, fishing company in particular that really dominates the industry and um, the. The, the, they've been using their economic weight to, for example, purchase the fishing quotas that are assigned to different little villages around the island. So, you know, on the one hand, that's money up front for these small rural communities. On the other hand, it's kind of sucking the life out of them over the long term. And uh, the, the, the the residual effects of that still to be seen. And as you say, then this sort of movement that goes on between the... Um, the civil service and the, the the public representation side of things, which isn't really something that would be a feature of political life in Ireland, for example, where you tend to be, you tend to either be in one of these tracks or the other. But then, as you say, the population is so small that it's hard to see how anything else could come up. You know, that um, something that's pointed out to me a lot is that a lot of people here have different hats that they wear at different times. And um, people who work one job are actually not necessarily the norm here mm. so like it's not unusual for example to come across somebody who uh, maybe spends 60 or 70 percent of their working week in one position and maybe does a part-time role somewhere else and so on and in some ways that might be suitable or unsuitable for the worker but the economy kind of needs it because mm. if everybody's just doing one job they'll end up being more jobs to do than there are people to do them mm. um so and i i think that principle you know it, it maybe it, maybe that sounds a bit too glib as well but i think that principle nearly carries over into political and economic life and i mean you know just as you mentioned the 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 the, the former finance minister with the, the veterinary background um for example veterinary veterinary studies is something you can't actually do in iceland mm. so you know there's a there's always a bit of a shortage of people who can do that work because you have to have gone abroad to do it so mm. it's not unusual for somebody to be a vet on the side you know if they've got some other gig going on but like you know they know how to sort out a horse you know they might still get a phone call in the middle of the night being like yon will you come down here because <laughs> i can't get yeah. anybody else on the phone L- look at i know you're the minister for finance i get that right but this fucking horse you know <laughs> this yeah, the thing, you know the budget yeah. Can... Wait. <laughs> exactly yeah when they're done with, the, with pmqs could you get down here and look after this yeah, you find exactly. a lot of those uh, young people actually studying in the university in copenhagen because of mm. the danish language yeah. and that kind of thing but that's a, that's a whole i was gonna say it's a whole different kettle of fish but the jokes are getting really bad now, you know? <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you luke about the, the stuff we were talking about the parallels between irish society and politics and icelandic society mm. and politics and there's so much to unpack there but one of the things i wanted to ask you about was the response to the financial crisis there in 2008 and 2009 in your time in your two years there have you had a chance to look because if you remember back to that we saw people out on the streets outside the Altinget there which is a very nondescript looking building down you know at the end of Reykjavik you know if you didn't know what it was you sort of walk past it but you know housewives and people and students and pensioners were down there banging bin lids off the ground like they used to do in Belfast in the 1970s there what's what Iceland has come out of that financial crash because it was a terrible kick in the teeth to the people there at the time 
Yeah, and I mean, I, I think as a society, they're still reckoning with that. Um, like, so the the, the protests you describe uh, are were known as the, uh, I think it roughly translates to English as the appliance revolution, because it was all these people like grabbing the pots and pans out of their kitchen and going down and banging them in the square outside the parliament. Uh, so, it, you know, it was something that moved the entire society, really. And one of the things that happened in what they called the crepe, which is their, their word for the crash, was uh, the ice save dispute where there was uh, a number of different financial misdealings that went on that affected banks as far, you know, in, in other countries as well, including in Britain, which led uh, the uh, Gordon Brown, who I, I can't remember, was he chancellor at the time or had he acceded to the, the prime minister's office at that stage? But he suggested that they were on, it was on the scale of financial terrorism. So there's a number of Icelanders I've met who remember taking part in a protest where they took pictures of themselves and sent them to Gordon Brown saying, do I look like a terrorist to you? So, <laughs> you know, so when you, when you have something like that there, you know, that, that, that that's something that That'll, that'll stay with you. Um, at the same time, I think, by and large, the recovery from that in an economic sense was pretty successful. Um, there have been some myths about this. Like one of the things that I thought I knew about Iceland before I arrived here was, oh, yeah, you know, they jailed all their bankers who were up to their eyeballs and whatever. And that's really <laughs> quite exaggerated. You know, there there was there was one person who did a bit of time. And as far as I'm aware, he's actually back in financial services since he's left prison. So yeah. I'm not really sure that, if that was as effective I, as we made it out to be. Yeah, I think you my know. last count was two that I knew in banking there who'd been to prison, you know, which is, uh, and if you ask anybody in sort of, you know, in down town Dublin or in Cork, we go, not oh, the whole lot of everyone that went to Mount Joy. You yeah. know? But unfortunately, that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you know, and I, I guess in the same way that like there's a lot of myths about Ireland that make their way abroad and, you know, it's kind of responsible responsibility of people like ourselves who are living abroad to sort of inter intervene with those ones to say, eh, it's not necessarily what happened. Uh, you know, the Icelanders are often sort of sigh and explain to me what actually happened if I mention something like this. <laughs> Um, but I mean, you know, they, like they, they, I guess they, they got lucky in a lot of ways that um, they had other things they could, you know, fall back on. And really, the pivot towards tourism uh, that uh, took place after the financial crisis here was extremely successful. You know, mm. it's it's one of the most well-oiled uh, machines for getting money out of tourists that I've seen anywhere outside of Dublin. Mm. And uh, you know, they 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 really, I it, I would have thought that. The last couple of years would have been very, very tough because of COVID restrictions and so on. And definitely there are parts of the economy that really struggled as a result of that. But there was no hesitation about, um, you know, embracing that again once uh, the restrictions were eased off and people started coming back in. You know, there was a real sense that like, OK, tourism has looked after us here and we're going to keep trying to make that a big part of uh, a big part of what we do. Uh, which you know, I, I guess, is partly helped when you're like, as the Icelanders tend to be, very welcoming people, very warm people. You know, um, it's I guess it's easier to do that kind of work as part of your economy if you actually like having people around. <laughs> mm. um, you know, and people seem to still seem to love it here. And I met a few people who've come back. You know, just out in the boat. Met them coming back in the last few months. Maybe they're first time or second time since the uh, pandemic, but certainly not their first or second time in the country. You know, it does seem to be a place that if you visit it once, you really want to come back again.
Yeah, I think I've been there five times in total now at, for various different stretches. And I've been outside of Reykjavik and Vestman Island, places mm-hmm. like that. You know, is it like from a tourist perspective, from anybody listening to this, you know, who may like me have been fascinated with it as a child. I found the last time I think I was there was in 2019 and it was blood curdlingly expensive to do anything <laughs> in Reykjavik. Is it still the same there if you want to go eating out or if you want to go have a drink somewhere? Well, it ain't cheap. I'll say that. I mean, it like every everything is relative, though, right? I mean, in the sense that, you know, as a tourist, yes, it's expensive, right? Because we, as Irish people, at least, a lot of the time, what we decide is good value or otherwise for tourism is what we would pay in Spain or you know somewhere else that uh, tends to have a lower cost of living than Ireland does. Mm. And here, there's a higher cost of living that's commensurate with what people actually get paid for working here and so on, and. You know, like I suppose if I if I'm coming over here and I'm paying hotel prices and I'm paying to eat in restaurants and so on, I'm going to feel that really, really badly. But then if you look at the two economies side by side and how expensive one is compared to another, like um, the rent here, and they're going through a little bit of a rental crisis, nothing on par with what's happening in Ireland, but they are struggling to find a home for everybody who wants one at the moment which is not a great position to be in but those who are renting are generally paying a bit less than they would be certainly in dublin uh partly in other parts of the country you know um there's the the their cost of bills here is still pretty low um iceland relies mostly on uh, geothermal energy for uh, producing its heating and its electricity and so on so the fuel crisis that's affected the rest of europe certainly hasn't been felt here in the same way it's the cost mm. of filling up your car might has gone up but the cost of heating your home really hasn't mm. um so like i guess it's when people say is it an expensive place i kind of have to i kind of have to figure out what question they're asking me because if yeah. they're saying is it expensive to come here on holiday yes is it expensive to live there? Not really. You know, I'm probably I'm probably still getting to the end of the month with a bit more money in my pocket than I would be if I was doing the same job in Ireland, you know? Mm. So it's working out well there. Uh, tell me about the Irish community there, Luke. You know, how many Irish people, would it be many Irish people that you bumped into there? I know, you know, you had a whole bunch of suggestions of people to be to talk to, but are these people that you see all the time? Is there a sort of, you know, an Irish bar there where people go to or do you sort of keep to yourselves? Yeah, it's it's a funny one, you know. Like I, um, I'll, I'll answer it by describing when I moved over, which was you know September twenty twenty, right? And if I have one piece of advice for anyone who's planning to emigrate anywhere, be it to Iceland or anywhere else, try not to do it at the start of a global health issue, <laughs> right? It, I, you know, there, there are very very few pieces of advice I'm comfortable giving people, but like. Well, that's one of them. Move a country in a pandemic is is doing it the hard way, right? It, I it wouldn't really recommend is. it, lads. It really is, really is. You know, <laughs> might never have occurred to you before, but it is. It is what it is. Um, so like when I when I came over here first, um, you know, we'd left what was at the time like it it, it wasn't fully locked down in Ireland. There was still a bit of moving and, and toing and froing, but it was we just were coming out of one of the hardest lockdowns in Europe. And uh, you know, we come here where things were a bit more, a bit more relaxed, but ultimately ended up uh, locking down quite strongly. Not long after we moved here, no connection. Uh, thankfully, <laughs> I didn't have to take the blame for that one. I was worried I would. <laughs> uh, but you know, so we, we had this very slow, gradual introduction to Icelandic life, and uh, I think our ability to connect with the Irish community here was a bit stymied because of that as well. Mm. Um. So we, we've gotten to know people a bit more since then. I think there's um, 160 in our in Iceland at the moment who are 
Irish citizens officially living here. Um, not sure if that's reflective of the reality because you know there's a a lot of people might still be on the the social security register here having moved home or moved mm. elsewhere or something in that time but i think it's about 160 and yeah it could be funny you know i was listening to i was listening to your chat with joe neil uh, from a little while ago talking about the, the the london irish community and really that's a quite a different experience from here mm. um and I, some of that's a question of volume you know there's just like there's there's more there, there there are obviously more Irish people in London than there are here, and there's sort of a long established set of networks there, and as you said, the bars and the community centres and stuff like that, like the the, the London Irish Community Centre and things like that, that don't really exist here. Um, so I I guess it's maybe not a surprise that we're a little bit more atomized. Hmm. Um, like, and I I'm certainly not speaking for every Irish migrant. Uh, when I say this, because there are quite different ways of being Irish abroad and there are quite different ways of interacting but for me at least um like the the person I speak to nice the most often is an Irish person but it's my partner who I live with so that's maybe not a fair comparison and then after that it was primarily Icelanders um because those were the people I was working with on a day-to-day basis you know my my landlords were Icelandic my neighbors were Icelandic um and it I don't think it was until might have been it might have been St Patrick's Day 2021 that I actually met in a proper way met some Irish people in the flesh here because there was there was there was a bit of a gathering um and you know I, I met some people for the first time there but you don't necessarily see a huge or at least I don't necessarily see a huge amount of them day to day um and you know partly that is just because we're all quite busy people you know like Iceland has one of the longer working weeks in Europe or at least it used to it's starting to cut back on its hours now a bit and people have been trialing four-day weeks and so on but you know there 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 is an awful lot of um I guess the the goldfish bowl about uh, working here and so on and it's you know it, it, I guess people find their tribes in different ways so for example like you know one of my favorite things to do when I'm not working, you know, is throwing myself into the live music scene. There's obviously a fabulous live music scene here. And there's a couple of Irish people I know who are involved in the scene. So I'll see them through that. Mm. But I'm not necessarily meeting them because we're all the paddies hanging out together. I'm meeting mm. them because we're both going to the same gigs or, you know, we have friends in common and, and all that. And it's very nice when you do get to meet up with a few of the, a few of the other uh, members of the Irish community. But I don't think that sort of very strong connection that you would see, particularly in London, but in other sort of bigger, I guess, urban centres where there's been a longer tradition of Irish migration. I don't think that sort of thing is really reflected here. Like mm. you mentioned, you asked about Irish bars and stuff like that. There's three what I would describe as paddy bars in the city centre here in Reykjavik. And I use that term advisedly because if I was to call them Irish bars, it might imply there were Irish people working in them. And <laughs> there is not one to be seen. I think there was one that employed a guy from Antrim a few years ago. Mm. Um, and since then, there's been uh, no Irish uh, staff members in the Irish bars, of which I'm aware, at least. And, you know, you, you can kind of have this sort of very strange experience where... I, I guess, you know, if the Irish want to go and meet up, we might go to one of the, the, the paddy bars and you find yourself having trying to have this very authentic Irish experience with other Irish people in a very inauthentic mm. um, image of Irishness. <laughs> Do you know what? So yeah. it feels, at least to me anyway, that always felt very, very strange. 
uh, you know, it, it feels a bit more normal when you meet them somewhere else, actually. Yeah, it's weird, like, you know, to, what, what makes an Irish pub, you know, because like yeah. there's certain bars here in Stockholm where I live and they have the sign over the door and they there was one that used to be called Galway's, never an Irish person in the place, Limerick was the same. But there's a pub called Veerstrom's, which is called after the site of an old bakery of which it's built. And that's about the most Irish bar in the place. And it's owned by a man mm. from Galway, you know, and this is the, like, so it's not actually the name over the door or what's hung up on the walls that makes yeah. that place, you know. What are the Icelandic people like, Luke? You mentioned we share an awful lot genetically with them. Do we share anything culturally with them? Do, is there anything that you find particularly appealing about them and living among them? I mean, I could be here all day talking about what I feel appealing about living with them. Um, in terms of what's similar to ourselves, yeah, there's there's a fair bit there as well. I think they're, you know, like genetically, they're a mix of ourselves and 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 the Scandinavians, and I think culturally, that's there too. So, like, you know, a big difference between them and, uh, let's say, I, I, I mean, I haven't lived in Sweden, but I, I believe that uh, uh, Swedish people are in general relatively punctual, for example. Very whereas, much so, yeah. Yeah, whereas in Iceland, they run on the same clock that we do. Like, mm. I don't I don't think I've ever been late by Icelandic standards for anything, not because I haven't been late but because i arrived the same time that they do which is usually five <laughs> minutes after the fact or whatever you know and i i remember like uh when i when i first came here you know like i we had some icelandic language classes uh so thankfully my my employer which is the, the university of iceland was uh had had language classes for new staff members and 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 the, whoever come over with them and so on and uh, i remember there was just this divide pretty much straight down the middle between people from island nations like ourselves and people from continental nations and who was showing up when in the zoom room it was all remote classes at the time and you know it, it was it was amazing it was you know you could predict it down and the only exception to the rule was the danish uh, guy who was teaching the class because he'd been here long enough that he knew, <laughs> uh, <laughs> knew that that was that was how things worked. But you know, there is that sort of, and I, you know, it, it, I'm telling the story because it's funny, but it does indicate a sort of a slightly relaxed approach to life here. Um, the the national the national uh, motto is "Set redast," which is basically the same as "Be grand." Yeah, uh, the, you know, the, the, the official translation is like everything will be OK. And, you know, there's a bit of that there here, you know, that permeates everything in Icelandic society. It can be really frustrating at times when you mm. are, you know, in desperate need of a straight answer to something. Um, and I guess particularly as a migrant, you know, I, you often encounter as migrants in Ireland would um, the locals maybe not understanding why you need an answer to something immediately. You know, the difference between, you know, I'm going to have to borrow money from my parents to keep the roof over my head versus I think I'm going to be deported if I don't get an answer to this question. You know, they might they might not understand that your issue is closer to the second one of those than the former or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so that can be a little bit frustrating. But if you're if you're not in that dire situation, having that little bit of flexibility and this understanding that, you know, if you if you need a bit of help, you can ask for it, and it's not going to be a problem. You know, you don't necessarily have to show up with forms eighty two through seven hundred and five filled out on the dot uh, before you get an answer to something. You may never get the answer if it's a really casual moment, but you also have people who are kind of happy to let things slide or give you a bit of a dig out if you need it and so on. And I, I that's I guess something that I see as being very Irish in its own way as well. That 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 sort of flexible approach to things, the good and the bad side of it. Um, 
you know, they're generally very, very warm, very sociable people. I have heard from some people that their first impressions of Icelanders have been uh, not that, that they, they feel they're a bit cold or a bit reserved. And my first question is usually something to the effect of, well, what did you ask them about themselves at the start of the conversation? And that person will look at me a little bit blankly because they expected that the Icelanders would do that asking. And, you know, then I explain, look, you have to speak to them on level terms because, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty, they're pretty, um, sort of looking for, you know, there's a sense of being their own, their own people, a bit like, a bit like ourselves that we don't necessarily get involved in each other's business all the time, but at the same time, we're always happy to, to, to listen in and to learn more about each other and all that. Like there's a, there's a joke here, for example, about um, the use of indicators while driving. And if you've ever tried to drive around Iceland, and if you've visited here, you probably have, because there's what we call the debilamening here, the car culture. So similar to ourselves, you know, people are maybe a bit less inclined to rely on the public transport. They're not always in a position to rely on the public transport. There's usually a private vehicle involved somewhere. They don't always indicate to tell you where they're turning. And the reason for that is they don't want you to know their business. <laughs> but, <laughs> But then, you know, in in, 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 in in a real setting, like if we're sitting down across from across from each other over a point, like, you know, there might be a, a kind of cautious opening moves for the first couple of minutes of the conversation. And by sure, by the end of it, everybody knows each other's seed breeding generation. And, mm. you know, you've probably been invited over to their house or, you know, something like that. So like that, I, I you know, that, that sort of... Um, that sort of warmth, that friendliness, that willingness to take everybody on their own merits yeah. is something that, as I say, I associate as being one of the better parts of Irish culture, and it's definitely a part of Icelandic culture as well. Well, I think it's very much something that it has to come from them, right? And you you build up that trust by telling them things about yourself, you know, rather than asking them, oh, you know, how many brothers and sisters do you have? Do you have kids? Are you married? That kind of thing. They go, whoa, who are you? The FBI? You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And they don't go mad for that thing at all. Is it somewhere you can see yourself staying there now, Luke? You're two years into the job there. Uh, you seem to have settled in well. I know you've been learning the language and you've obviously got a good grasp of the idioms and the, and the, so the in-jokes and the culture and that kind of thing. Is it somewhere that you, you can see yourself living if not the rest of your life, was certainly a good part of it. That's a million dollar question. I would say the million kroner question, but that actually reduces the value by quite a bit. <laughs> by um, quite, some time. quite a bit. So, yeah, I mean, I I love it here. I'd say that. I don't necessarily know what my job prospects here would be long term. Do you know, I mean, it, mm. I'm, I'm, I work in academia. I'm a political scientist by trade. And, you know, there's not always a huge amount of permanent jobs available in that. I've been contract to contract since I arrived here. And, you know, I got I got pretty lucky that I arrived here doing something completely unrelated to anything I'd ever done previously. Uh, mm. It was it was in academia, it involved statistics, but other than that, it was completely removed from anything I'd done previously. Um, and then when that contract finished, they took a chance on me. It all worked out well. That contract finished. I got offered something that was looking at Irish politics, comparing that with Iceland. And mm. then, you know, that was another opportunity for me to stay a bit longer. And you don't know what the next opportunity is going to be or where it would be. If I could place it here, that would be fantastic. And what I, I you know, if, I, if if we if we were operating with a free hand, you know, if we, if we could just will these things into existence for ourselves, to do something on the level of setting up like a an Irish studies centre, something like mm. that here, because of that similarity and that resonance between the two cultures that we've been talking about. Do you know there's parts of the world that have centres for Irish studies or institutes for Irish studies that don't have half as much in common with Ireland as Iceland does. Hmm. And to do something like that would be fantastic. It would set me up, <laughs> and it would for life. Be, for <laughs> life, and it would be hopefully good for everybody else as well. So yeah. I guess the short answer is 
could I see myself doing it? Yes. Do I know how I'd make it happen? Not really. <laughs> no, no idea just yet. You know. Can I just ask you, where do you live? Do you live in the centre of Reykjavik, or do you live in the in the suburbs or whereabouts? Because it's basically it's one big long street with a few other smaller streets <laughs> off it, and then Halgrim Shilka, which is the big church that everybody has on their postcards, and that's about it, right? Well, I actually used to live very close to Halgrim's Kirk, as it happens, and uh, I, I moved up the other end of the postcode. So there's uh, a few different divisions in Reykjavik, and uh, 101 is the one that is kind of right bang in the middle of things. Yeah. And I, I lived on, I lived that one end of that almost when I first moved here, and then I moved up kind of almost to the other end of it. But it's still, it's still pretty central. It's, um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a fun part of town where I now am now. Actually, it's, um, it's, it's very much more residential I guess there's uh, fewer Airbnbs and all the rest mm. of it than maybe there would be in some other parts of central Reykjavik actually across the road from the uh, the, the Russian Orthodox Church um, and they're quite close to the um, to the, the the one of the streets that has a lot of the embassies and stuff on it as well mm. so there's always kind of something interesting happening up around here and being in the middle of town I think is a nice place to be when you're still finding your feet in, in the in the community here you know like there's an mm. awful lot of people here who live in the suburbs and you know they're they're busing in and out driving in and out whatever else and it just takes a bit of time away from your uh the time you have to settle in and get to know people and so on so we, we were pretty lucky i think in being able to be bang in the middle of things for so much of our time here at least at the start and in terms of the university then, I mean is it a very big university would you have a lot of students that you're teaching now uh but teaching politics to there yeah, well, I, I my my main job here has been researching. So I've only been teaching relatively recently, and it was kind of small groups of international students who I was teaching. Because mm. while I like to think my Icelandic is improving, I'm not necessarily sure I'm going to be teaching political science to Icelanders with it in Iceland after just two years just, there. <laughs> maybe not just yet. So the, the the university I work for is the University of Iceland, which is one of uh, kind of seven major institutes of higher education in Iceland, which seems like a lot when you consider the size of the population. Uh, but we'd be the only one that that's quite big in terms mm. of student numbers. You know, we'd be something kind of, uh, I guess, kind of around kind of NUIG minute sized, um, mm. maybe not quite as big as uh, as, as Cork or, or UCD or Trinity. Um, and then there's a, a few others dotted around the place, um, usually kind of more specialized institutions. So like there's the, the Reykjavik University, which uh, kind of has a lot of social science courses or business courses in it. Uh, Bifrost University, which tends to be quite business focused as well. There's an agricultural college and a few other places like that, too. So it's 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 a bit of a different experience from Ireland in that regard. Um, you know, there's not necessarily <laughs> a whole list of places offering you jobs, for example, if you're whatever or, you know, if you um, if you're if you're living in a, a remote part of the island, you know, you you might need to consider relocating if you're if you're going to be studying. Or although, to be honest, actually, they they, they have been very good here. I think at uh, embracing the the remote studying uh, yeah. options that are available. Like, I mean, I think maybe they were a better able in some ways to absorb the blow of COVID from a teaching perspective, because a lot of these courses were already being done primarily online. Or you know, with a big online focus, because you know, like it's a it's a small population, but it's a big sucker of an island, you know. And if you're in in one corner of it, and your college is in another, <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, it could be it could be it could be quite difficult getting there and back, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, you always hear this thing of if you're going to hire a car, there rent a Land Rover just in case, because <laughs> you know you never know if you can pass through certain roads and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, 
Luke, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. And no doubt I'm going to have you back on again in the near future to, to go through some of these things, if not on this podcast, on some other podcast. But for now, uh, thank you very much indeed for talking to me. And I'll see you sometime soon in Reykjavik. I think I might have to pay you a visit. Brilliant. Thanks very much. It's fantastic. Really enjoyed it. That was the wonderful, the magnificent, the fascinating, and indeed the very handsome Luke Field talking to me there uh, a couple of weeks ago. We put that one uh, in storage and we said we'd bring it out to you whilst I was over here in Doha. Fascinating character. And Jesus, I can't wait. I'll be looking. I hope the wife isn't listening to this because I'll be looking for an excuse to get over and have a chat with Luke and uh, a couple of other Irish people over there as well. There's a brilliant photographer over there that, that Luke knows and uh, I'm going to have to get in touch with them and head over there and see what the crack is. Listen, we're getting towards the end of this episode, right? But I want to bring you a little bit of news. Hopefully, 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 fingers crossed when I get home, I'll be able to do an episode next week about an upcoming Christmas concert for the likes of you and me and sure all the Irish abroad, right? It's a Christmas concert being organised by, I think it might be the Department of Foreign Affairs that are behind this, right? But they have an initiative called To Be Irish, right? And does Back Home a Christmas concert is coming up on Wednesday the 21st of December at uh, 8 o'clock in the evening. Now, I'm assuming that that is 8 o'clock Irish time because uh, the a gig is happening in Ireland, right? So it's both... Uh, a, a sort of a live event that you can attend if you happen to be in Dublin if you're home for Christmas go ahead and do that it's at the Irish Emigration Museum which is the CHQ building Custom House Key North Dock Dublin 1 Ireland a place that I know well and an area that I know well and I'll just give you a little bit of a blurb right that they have written on their website it says with so many of our family and friends returning home for Christmas this year what better way to welcome them back than with an evening of music the spoken word and plenty of Christmas cheer To Be Irish presents Back Home a special in person and live stream concert for everyone who calls Ireland home whether you've moved back from abroad or home for the holidays or are newly settled in the Emerald Isle we welcome you with open arms as we celebrate the season and your Jesus lads if you couldn't get involved in that what could you get involved in so it's at the Irish Emigration Museum or Irish Emigration Museum um, you have Paul Noonan of Bell X1 is going to be there you have an artist called Aaron Fornoff folk singer Aoife Scott cellist pa- Patrick Dexter who became really famous there during the pandemic uh, just sitting playing his cello and bringing us great and very uplifting music I think Patrick is one of the people that I'm hoping to get on the podcast since I've been talking to the producers uh, harpist Claire O'Donnell and this just loads of people. Zainab El-Ghazuli is going to be there as well, a singer-songwriter, and she will be presenting it as well. So, as far as I can see, seems to me like the tickets are free. It says here, to attend this special event in person with a friend or family member, simply fill out the short form at the link below and tell us your story of calling Ireland home. So, if you go to tobeirish.ie, event, back home, a Christmas concert, you can even get yourself a couple of tickets there. Now, as I say, lads, I think they're free, but for the love of God, don't come after me if they aren't, right? But uh, it sounds like an absolutely brilliant event, and as I say, I have been in touch with the organisers so that we can hopefully bring you a little bit more information information about that and we'll do a little bit of a podcast about it because it's the time of the year for this kind of thing we tend to take stock of where we are in life and where we've been and where we come from and where where we're going 
and I think it's something that I'm really bad at doing um, in my life is sort of, you know, sort of taking that time out and going, you know what, Jesus, for a fellow from the north side of Dublin, you haven't done too bad. And I think a lot of us, especially living abroad, we tend to get so caught up in the fact that we have to keep going, we have to keep delivering, we have to keep performing and producing and doing all the things that make us valuable parts of our community, not just our Irish community, but our local communities as well, and indeed our families and all the effort that we put into those things. And at this time of the year, when Christmas is just around the corner, and of course a new year's beginning and we're starting to think about what we're going to do with that and what we want to achieve i think it's a really good opportunity to maybe take that time on the 21st of december and think about our relationship to our country and think about our relationship to ourselves and to those around us and who we want to be and who we want them to see us as and what we can bring to them right so if you can make that concert do if you can't be there see if you can find it to watch online and if not sure one way or the other we'll try to do a bit of a podcast about it and give you a little bit of that christmas cheer be a little bit of that taste at home that we all love to have at this time of the year lads this suitcase isn't going to pack itself so i'm going to go pack it now and i'll be back in my little studio in stockholm next week for another episode of the global gale hopefully about that concert but until then look after yourselves look after one another look after your community but mostly look after ourselves because uh, let's put ourselves in focus for a little while now and i'll be back to you again next week with another episode of the global gale good luck take care (laughs) 